Real life. Superpowers. In business, it's really easy to say, like if you're an assistant for the CEO and the CEO says, hey, that person, I don't want to talk to them today. Can you just make up a lie and say that like, I, I had to go home because I don't feel well. We would never, ever do that at Charity Water. So we would always find either a way to say, sorry, this, you know, so-and-so isn't able to speak with you today. Meaning, meaning like that's not a lie. Yeah. But, you know, so even like those little tiny details we care deeply about because we realize there's no way we can live with integrity if we're wrapped up in a bunch of, you know, lies that we can't keep track of. Hello, all. Today we speak with Vic Harrison, who's most known as the co-creator of Charity Water, a nonprofit that provides drinking water to people in developing nations. Since it was founded in 2006, Charity Water has inspired a movement of 1 million supporters from 100 countries, and to date, they've helped 10 million people around the world get access to clean water. Vic is the brains behind the charity's design and branding. She's played a major role in its success. She now has her own consulting firm, The Branded Startup, where she brings all her knowledge and experience to help purpose-driven entrepreneurs and nonprofits clarify their vision and tell their story. If you've heard of Charity Water, you probably already know why this episode is a gem. If you haven't, you're about to find out. Real Life Superpowers Welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. What are you up to these days? You know, I'm doing a bunch of, a little bit of everything. I'm a mom of two kids, and that's obviously the most important role. And um, that means I juggle trying to work and also uh, parent. And that has been very interesting during COVID because school unexpectedly can shut down at any moment. And then I'm, you know, um, trying to work around kids. And so that's the most important thing that I, that I focus on is figuring out how to parent and work. Um, but I'm also, uh, we just bought a farm, uh, about eight months ago. So I'm getting excited to start planting a garden. Where did you move from? We moved from New York city. So during COVID, you know, when everything got shut down, we, we just figured, um, when we, when Scott, my husband, who's the founder of charity water moved our entire organization to remote, we decided, you know what, there's no, no more, a really compelling reason holding us here in New York city. And we've always wanted to live somewhere else. So we are on a farm in Pennsylvania, about two and a half hours outside of New York. Wow. That's quite the change. Huge. And how does it feel? Amazing. I mean, it's, it's definitely, I get these very, you know, um, piercing moments of missing my hometown, New York City, where I grew up for 25 years. Uh, but most of the time when I see my kids running barefoot in the grass, it uh, it's all worth it. Yeah, it's it's quite the change, like in the mindset. Do you feel like, you know, there's some sort of electricity in New York City of doing and, you know, being where the action is? Like, do you feel left out or are you comfortable where you are? You know, I, I think I miss just what New York city made me. And that's kind of where that, that's what I've figured out is my reason behind missing it. Most of the time is just that 
it has shaped who I am at the very core. I, I moved to New York when I was nine from, uh, I was a, a Russian immigrant. My family came to the United States when I was nine years old from Russia. I spoke no English. We moved right to Brooklyn. Then I went to art school in, in, in Manhattan. I grew up, I met Scott. I built my career in New York and it's made me, you know, a real New Yorker. And so uh, coming out to the country, it's very different. And it's also really interesting politically because uh, I'm sure you've been following, you know, everything's been going on in the United States over the last year or four years with, yeah. with the president and, and everything going on. And I, I really get now to see what the other half of America, you know, um, is talking about with Republicans versus Democrats. And out here, there's farmers who have lost their jobs, who have lost their livelihoods. And uh, it's really interesting to get to meet the people that I think in many ways, the, the very, you know, city Democrats kind of demonize and really see that they're real people underneath it all. And um, I think that's a really good experience for me and for my kids and for my family to get to really see the other side of uh, the argument. So that's something that I like a lot of people are like, uh, that I know, um, uh, very successful business people like yourself. Um the changing because of the COVID, you know, something, uh, you know, pivot, uh, very, uh, um, it's like an epiphany moment or excuse to do what they really want to do, which is, which is a good thing. And I think that's one of the things that people are like, okay with it. Right. So, but the two things that I find the most fearful for them is one, how to motivate themselves every day to be an entrepreneur, because as an entrepreneur, you take responsibility of others. And when you're far away, you're responsible for yourself. And that's kind of scary because you have to manage yourself and people aren't managing you, even though you're the boss, they still manage you, right? They call it their problems, whatever, and you're far away. The second thing is moving. And as an entrepreneur, you're going to see different opportunities because you're going to see different challenges. So it's actually changing a little bit of mindset. So the two, those two fear outcomes, like how do you navigate between them? And is there any you know, kind of questions in your mind to pivot or to challenge what you're doing till now. Absolutely. It does. It really does challenge you because I think when you're an entrepreneur in a big city like San Francisco or LA or New York or, um, you know, Tel Aviv, uh, you are around that energy all day long. And, um, and then when you exit that environment and you are kind of then forced to self-motivate, um, it can, yeah, it can definitely change things, you know, but I think for, for me specifically and for myself and Scott, um, we became parents before we moved out here and we were parenting our kids in, in New York city, which was hard because you're sort of constantly living in this tension, you know, when you're single or when you're married without kids, you can devote pretty much most of your time to your career. But then when you become a parent, you have to, um, spend time with, your family unit in order to raise healthy, happy kids. Do you have and to? Is, so that, is, is that the right word to put it? Do you have to? I think I'm going to challenge that. I'll tell you why. Because the, the have to thing, there are solutions. And people who say have to, they usually say, I want to. They're scared to say it. And it, that's okay. And then I'm saying, if you want to, okay, so what is the price of that? Like, this is interesting for me. I'll tell you why. Because we're talking to a lot of entrepreneurs. And for me, I'm, I'm, I, I'll say it. Okay. I don't have the heart not to want to, right? So if you give me the challenge, then I'll say, if I have to say, yeah, I just wanted not to be in the kids, I'll, I'll, 
I'll physically feel bad and I'll have laryngitis. Right? So, so I can't, you know, my consciousness is, is big, but what is the price of that? And how do you manage yourself? Like, because you're an entrepreneur, this is actually the question. What are your boundaries? How do you manage that? Like, what is the do's go to? Yeah. So to answer the first part of your question, have to or want to, I honestly sometimes have to force myself to get off the computer or get off the phone. Um, you know, spending time with a four-year-old as an adult sometimes can can be pretty hard because I, there's only so many minutes I have the patience to sit and play blocks or play with a train set. Uh, I'd rather, way, way rather be writing a, an email to my email list or planning my next course, et cetera. So, uh, but I know that I would have nothing if I didn't have, if I didn't raise, you know, healthy, emotionally healthy children. And that includes, and that means spending, that means spending time. Children understand quality, not quantity of time. Uh, so that's, that's how I feel about that. And um, the second part of your question about boundaries, you know, I have found, so I'll just give this, I'll just tell this story because I think it's the best way to answer the question. I had wanted to launch a course for a nonprofit's I long, I wanted to launch a course for a very long time for about four years and was always scared to do it and didn't know, um, how really where to get started, how to, um, put the content together. Didn't really, but really underneath all that, what that, what was going on for me was, I didn't know, I didn't have the, I wasn't sure that people would want to see my content out there and would want to, um, engage with the course to buy the course. And, when I had a lot of time, so before COVID, both my kids were in school full time and I um, had every, I had five days a week of work time to myself and I would spend month after month procrastinating and creating free content for, uh, you know, for, for my, for my audience and kind of pretending like that's what I needed to do before I could launch the course. But really in the underneath it all, I think I was just scared when COVID hit and we were all cooped up in this house together when it was seemingly, and we had just bought the house, we had so much going on. It seemingly was the worst time to launch a course uh, is when I actually launched the course. I locked myself in my office for six weeks. I put all of the content together. I shot 12 videos. I wrote the scripts for everything, set it all up. And it was actually the lack of time that forced me to just get it done. So in a way, I think when you have a lot of time, you tend to waste it and take it for granted. When all of a sudden you have a deadline in six days, uh, your balls to the wall, just forced to get it done. So I actually announced my launch date before I had any of the content created, which scared the crap out of me. I said, okay, in six weeks on September 15th, the course is launching. Here's what it's going to be about. I created a landing page. And then I basically didn't sleep for probably two weeks because I was terrified, but then I got it done and it was awesome. And you know what? I look back at the lessons now and I'm like, if I had six months versus six weeks to create the course, I think the course would have been worse because I would have had too much time and I would have reshot things and been overthinking it too much. Have you heard of Parkinson's law? 
I have a remind me. I mean, I, I'm if you remind me, I'm probably, yeah. What is what does it say? I read about it in Tim Ferriss's book, The Four Hour Workweek, and basically the rule, the law says a task will take as long as you let it. If you give it six weeks, it's gonna take six weeks. If you're gonna give it a week, you're still gonna make it on time because it's just as long as you give it. Now, I guess there are some tasks where you just objectively need more time, but just what you're describing just makes me think about it because basically. You couldn't afford now to let all those fears interrupt you because you had a deadline, which is a great way to sort of just get things done. Exactly. And that's what I plan to do for, for everything in the future. It's, it's just, you know, there's two things that, that I think create those very good pressures to get things done. One is diving off a cliff and growing wings on the way down, or the belief that you can jump off the cliff and grow wings on the way down. And the second is that deadline. If you have those two things, if you give yourself a deadline and have that belief that like, you'll just figure out how to do this when the pressure is on to do it. That's how I've, I've gotten most of the scary things in my life done. Is it out there? Like you have to say it out loud to a third party because, you know, I'm sorry for the crazy note here, but when you get up in the morning and you say you want to run, right? There's this other side of you, which is really weird to say, but he says, no, you don't. You have to sleep for another hour, right? Absolutely. It happens to me every day. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. So I, I was scared to say, but you yeah. know, but that, that's, that's the, there's, there's this negative asshole in your mind that's saying, you, so you don't have to do that. Right. And then my question is this, does it really help to actually say that statement and deadline to a third party, to someone else, to anybody, as opposed to yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, so in fact that I would say that's the third component, which is, you know, if I set this deadline for myself in my own head and didn't tell anybody about it, I would have absolutely missed it. I would not, there'd be no chance that I would have met that deadline. But because I created a landing page and put it out on my social media and told everybody and sent an email saying this is the, the drop dead date, that's the only reason it got, it got done. It's sort of like strategy one and two are the same strategy, right? Because you're saying, you're saying a deadline plus throwing yourself in the water, right? So Yeah. Yeah. And, and it has to be a public deadline because I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of people really do now talk about personal integrity. So keeping your promises to your own self are so important. That just doesn't seem practical to me because, you know, it takes, I think it takes a very, very disciplined person who can keep their promises to themselves. And I know that they exist and I'm not one of them. <laughs> So I need that outside accountability. I got to say, I'm listening to you and your humility really comes across and it's, it can get even a bit confusing because at the end of the day, I think it's fair to say that we're sitting here with one of the best storytellers in the world. And I'll tell you why I think this. Um, I think the story of, of Charity Water is one that nobody can say indifferent to. And there are a lot of nonprofits out there and the causes are all Not all, but a lot of them are so important. So it's very difficult to sort of even decide what you want to go with. But I'm an example of somebody who donates to Charity Water. And I think... Thank you. And of course. And I think part of the reason that I do it, if not the main reason, is the storytelling behind it, which I know and understand that you're behind. And I heard Scott, uh, your co-founder and husband, talk about this uh, few years ago in a podcast interview and then I heard him live uh, at one of the housepot conferences at inbound in Boston and both times I listened to him like I think anybody who listens to Scott tell the story and doesn't at least have a little bit of a tear in their eye 
we got to go back and check what went wrong in their childhood because it's just, you cannot just stay indifferent. And, and it's so amazing. Like he goes up on stages and he tells the story and it converts. I, I'm, I'm sure of it and I've read about it, but it would, it's just logical that people listen to him and they feel like they want to be a part of this and do good. And it's just amazing on so many levels. And, and what I'm curious about is, was this intuitive? Well, um, I entered the marketing world very young, 23 years old. And, you know, I was fed this huge dream that I probably saw on television screens, you know, as young as nine, 10 years old, when I would watch Cheerios commercials and just had this dream of like, I want to be the person who makes those commercials. I want to be behind the scenes, creating content, advertising. And when I got into the world of advertising, it, it was just this kind of incredible slap in the face almost when I realized that so much of mass mainstream advertising, and this is back in 2006, 2000, 2003 to 2006, when I was in marketing, um, I realized that there was so much, um, I guess, fakeness in in this world. Um, and so much was spun up and created to sell products, obviously, um, but in, in, in not a very authentic way. And I saw, you know, behind the scenes, the people who would make advertisements for Pepsi or for a cereal brand or for a brand of lipstick themselves didn't use those products, didn't believe in those products, would never eat those products. And yet they were creating the sexiest advertising for those products. And that began to sort of unravel this dream that I've always had um, and showed me sort of the dark side of advertising. And now I think I say, you know, I, I say the time frame because I think that a lot has changed in advertising. You know, I, there's a study done by the Havas group um, that recent, in, over the last 10 years, um, gosh, there's so much decline in cus- consumer trust of big brands. The study polled hundreds and hundreds of consumers, probably hundreds of thousands of consumers around the world, asking how many brands would they actually miss if those brands were gone and determined that 73%, 73% of big name brands would not be missed by most consumers if they disappeared tomorrow. And that's where, you know, that's where the more authentic and real advertising comes in with, you know, and sort of was timed with the dawn of social media, where now you can see the real faces and stories behind a brand versus the perception that they would like you to see on the front page of a newspaper or a magazine or commercial. And, you know, we found out over the last 15 years that a lot of brands just straight up lie and don't tell the truth, but that created this really desire and market for authentic storytelling instead of fake advertising. And that's where Charity Water, you know, Charity Water sort of grew up in this new age of social media of transparency. And we said from the very beginning, like, there's just nothing that we are going to hide from from the public, you know, And, and a lot of it was also a reaction to the fact that so many nonprofits had zero trust with with the public. Um, Half of Americans don't trust nonprofits. There are so many scandals over the years, um, mismanagement of funds, just complete embezzlement, lies. And we just wanted to counteract that from the very beginning. 
which is how, you know, how, how we, we approached all of the advertising, all the branding, all of the marketing. We don't really say we market or advertise. We just say we tell stories. And you do. But was that intuitive? Did you just feel sort of disgusted with the whole selling out and just commercial aspects of advertising and that you want to do something with purpose? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a lot of it was intuitive, but it was also intentional, if that makes sense. So we intuitively knew that like anytime we would see in the early days, a brand telling an authentic, genuine story, whether it was about a customer or one of their employees, or even a fictional story to advertise their product or service, we would bookmark that. We would pass that around the office and we would say, look at this. This is what advertising should look like. It should be these human stories that we can all connect to. And that was just always something we talked about, that this is the kind of content we want to create. Uh, so is both intuitive, but also intentional. That's funny because it really surprises me when I saw it, what I thought was the, like the seed of it. And um, I see that was wrong was the connection that people want to be part of the story and not invest in other people's story. Meaning the galas of, of getting people to donate. And they're so far from, you know, I'm imagining, you know, the gala of people dressed very nicely, you know, spending money for the African starving child, which never they see where it went and why. Forget about embezzlement. It's for a different reason. I'm taking Phoebe and friends as a, as a you know, reference, right? So she, she, she gave money, but she wanted to feel the feedback. She's doing something good and not being connected to the story, feeling every day that something's happening. And the epiphany when I saw it was the connection between the story and the person feeling proud that he's actually helping. It is transparent, but I really thought that the epiphany was if you connect people to how they're actually helping, they will be, you know, crowdsourcing, seeing the outcome of the product. So I thought it came from there. Uh, well, you know what? It evolved into that. Um, and, and that's an excellent point. You know, I think there's so many, uh, there's so many things that make, Charity Water, what it is, and uh, so much in that DNA. And, and you're right. One of them is we just, we did not believe that people should just sit comfortably in their glass mansions and, you know, give throwaway money to the charity just to like write it off on their taxes. We believed people are better than that. We, we believed people had the capacity for generosity and compassion that was way beyond that. And that's what we called people into from the very beginning. And that was like, that was really, that came from Scott until this day when he asks someone for a large donation, he makes it almost feel like that, that we're doing you a favor. We charity water are doing you a favor by letting you be a part of this amazing mission cause and story of ending the water crisis. And If you want to join us, awesome. We are on our way there already and we would love to have you. But if you are not really passionate about it, then we'd rather not. Like, don't give us your money if you are not doing it with generosity, with a full heart, with passion. And that really, uh, A, resonates with donors because, you know, I talk a lot in the nonprofit space uh, about this, but donors don't like to smell desperation, right? When, when you come and you're like, oh my gosh, we're going to run out of money. Can you please help us? We're so sorry. You know, these people need our work. We, 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 can't, we can't do this without you. Feel good. On a business point, if I have to like say a method, it's like you found, found a way to hack the 
retention rate as opposed to the conversion rate. So if someone converts to any nonprofit, that's fine. But then the sale is from the beginning saying, this year, well, how much do you want to put? As opposed to retention rate, seeing that the impact every time, he has to look at the impact himself. And then he always has a top of mind, meaning as opposed to if I have two donations, one, I'm going to give the money, okay? Then I want to see the impact it does. Then you have people, there's people who want for the publicity and there's people who want to donate because of the impact. Those people keep on donating, let's say Noah, for example, because they see the retention, they see the impact. So say, as long as it's impacting, I'm keep, I'm keep on going. But it touches on what you're saying, Vic. I think, I think I understand what you're saying now because there's something about a nonprofit that calls you uh, on their knees talking about how you are their last chance versus doing something that you feel confidence that the people leading it are, in, are, in, are on it and you're joining something bigger than you. And in a sense, even if it's like not you know, consciously, I'm not risking my money. It's not like I'm going to put it in. They're going to cave tomorrow. I'm joining something bigger than me and I, and I'm going to say something not PC, but maybe cool, you know, yeah. there, and that's yeah. also part of the narrative. Like there's something about Scott and his all, yeah, I used to be a party dude and, 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 and everything to do with the story that, and, and I would love for you to break down that formula so that people can learn from it. But you, you sort of hacked the formula of how people exactly that can sort of feel like, Hey, how can I join? And can, almost, can you accept me? <laughs> and it's a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's like totally That's tilting the pyramid. Yeah. And it's, Obviously, we, we, we consciously try to never, ever exclude anybody, but we also realize that people like to give to something that's working, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's the same with, with startup investing. Investors are going to invest in something that's working. So when people give to nonprofits, what they're really buying is the trust factor and the confidence factor because you're not buying a physical product. So you know when you shop for clothes or a car or furniture, the first thing you think about is, you know, is this product a good value for the money that I'm going to spend? You don't necessarily immediately think how, what are the values of this company? Is the founder a good guy or woman? Like, who are they at the core? No, you're like, is this chair worth $500? Me? Well, with nonprofits, all you're buying really is how are these people going to manage my money? And are they competent? Are they passionate? Are they going to work really hard to make sure that my money is spent well? Are they going to show me results? How do they run their company? So you're buying trust in people. And that's why I encourage nonprofit founders to get in front of the camera, to be personable, to tell their story, to show their face, because it's important that we trust the people who are managing our money. And as as far as I wanted to mention a book, because I, I keep having this thought come up. Um, there's a book called The Human Brand, and it talks about the, the reason we trust brands as humans is the same reason we trust humans. Um, it's like a proxy. And there are two qualities that make a brand excellent, essentially, or make people really attracted to a brand. And the qualities are warmth and competence. So the first thing is, is this brand, does it have warmth? Does it feel human? Uh, and this comes probably, you know, in this book, the, the explanation is this comes almost from our, our lizard brain. When we would approach uh, back, you know, back as cave people, we would approach somebody. And the first thing we would 
have to figure out is, is this person, does this person mean me well, or does this person mean harm to me? And when, when they smile, when they're, when you can see their eyes or when, you know, they tell you a human story that triggers a warm feeling for us. So warmth is number one. And the second one is competence. So the second thing that you, as, as a cave person, let's say, um, would look for is, okay, now that this person is not going to kill me or eat me or whatever, the second thing I want to know is, can they help me? Can they help me self-actualize or whatever? Uh, so the competence piece is second. And, and I think that's really, really, um, you know, underneath it all, I think of, of the, the reasons Charity Water has been successful at, are, it comes down to, to really those two things. We, we, we work really hard to create a human connection with our donors. And then we also show them that like, we're really competent. I, I think that makes perfect sense. Let's maybe talk a little about storytelling because I've heard Alex Bloomberg of Grimith Media and Planet Money uh, talk about that a bit. And he was saying with respect to nonprofits, but I would say it's beyond uh, that people who manage a nonprofit, and again, I think that also applies to any company or startup that has a mission, they feel like once they have a mission, people should should buy into it. And basically, they get a little bit angry even, and they sort of feel like, because it's important, like they, they, they feel like you should understand it's important and you should pay, and, and you're a bad person if you're not. But in reality, where people have to prioritize and they can't choose everything, and at the end of the day, you know, people are doing what they can. And, and it's just, I don't know, for an example, if a person is not becoming a vegetarian and now they feel everybody else should. Uh, but it's not enough to just be righteous. And and being righteous, I think, is a disease of nonprofits, but probably of startups in general. It's just easier to talk about nonprofits. And what Alex Bloomberg was saying is something made your heart spark. Something made you relate to this at a very deep level. And if you can tap into that reality and truth, and communicate that, then you win. Because that's something people can now join you in and see this through your eyes. Can you relate to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why Scott's story works. Because they see themselves in his story in one way or another. He was living for himself, going after the hot girls and the models and the money and the bottles and the private flights to con when he was in his twenties and promoting nightclubs uh, and found him, you know, doing drugs, drinking too much, all that stuff and found himself in, you know, at 29 hating what his life has become because that's because he was living only for himself, for his own pleasure and ambitions, you know, and, and a lot of people get to that place. I got to that place at 24 before I met Scott with, with advertising. I was, I, I had visions of myself walking in stilettos through an advertising office to my corner office. You know, that's what I envisioned for my life. And, and, and quickly I realized like, that's never going to make me happy, especially if I have to lie to sell these products that I don't believe in. Like, who am I going to be at 40 or 50 or 70? And what's my life going to mean? You know, and Scott had that same revelation. He's like, I don't want my tombstone to say here lies Scott Harrison, who got a million people drunk for a living, (laughs) you know, now it's drunk in a different way. But um, so, so, you know, he wanted to change his life and, and telling that story is why so many people relate to charity water, because at some point or another, you know, we have to switch 
our motives from setting up our own life to contributing to the world in a bigger way. And that's, you know, that's what they see in the charity water story. I think that's really relatable. Yeah. But, but like Vic, um, you realized this pretty early and still you took quite the leap. Like you left a promising day job and you just went all in on, on a nonprofit. Like, were you scared? Yeah. I was 24. I didn't have children. I was pretty free and I just believed in Scott. I believed for whatever reason, because he didn't show very much promise in the beginning, but he was so dang insistent. And he was broke. He had no money in his bank account. He was, we were, we were working out of his Soho loft where he, sh- that he shared with like three roommates, one of whom was a heroin addict. So it was, um, wasn't like I start, I went to a established nonprofit that had an office and <laughs> uh, so, but he showed promise in the unconventional ways. He was a rugged entrepreneur, like never without his laptop. Every chance he got, he would crack that laptop open at restaurants, in train stations to show people the story of, you know, the, the, the story of his kind of life at, at that point, his trip to Africa. And, um, and I just had never met anybody like him before. So, so, so in that way, it was, it wasn't so scary because I knew this guy had like this raw potential, but my, I will say, you know, when my, some, I mentioned we were immigrants came to America, my family, they were not about what I did. They were so upset with me. They were like, we did not bring you to this country, our only child to leave your promising advertising career that we sent you to college for so that you could go help people on a different continent and probably be poor for the rest of your life. Um, well, you know, fast forward 15 years later, we have pretty good salary. We, we bought a home, like we're doing just fine. We actually help pay for my grandparents rent. So, um, now they're, now they're very proud of what, what we've been able to accomplish. But that first time I broke the news to them, Hey mom, I'm leaving this really nice advertising firm to go sit on this guy's couch in Soho and, um, build this charity. They didn't speak to me for three weeks. They were mad. That's harsh, but you still did it. Yeah, I did. I, I just, I felt like I got one life to live and I, I don't want to regret when I'm 70, how I've spent that time. That's deep wisdom for a very young girl. I think taking risks and this whole, I love this whole notion of like jumping and growing wings on your way down as a mantra for life in general, um, because it's just a, a really great way to live. And, and I haven't really put words to it, but it just feels like the right thing to do. Um, to not be scared, to not be afraid to change your mind, like even just not be set in your ways. And, you know, I think a lot of people in their, in the stage of life that we're going to enter soon, right? Like when you turn like 38, 39, 40, 50, a lot of people stop being generative. They stop trying new things. They stop creating. They just sort of stop doing anything new. You're, you're not jumping off of cliffs, though. I'm sorry that I'm, I'm sounding like a fan of yours, but I, I am a little bit because I'll tell you why. You're loyal to yourself because you're jumping on certain cliffs that you're saying, I'll take a leap of faith as long as I'm loyal to myself, which is important to say because we have people listening that the outcome is not just leaping. It's leaping with the loyalty that, you know, you want to be loyal to yourself so you're willing to take that leap because you have thought behind it, right? Because I don't want people taking risks. They're not loyal to themselves, right? <laughs> 
Absolutely. Or, or, or where it feels wrong. And I think that's a really important, you know, thing to understand uh, that there's, there's fear and then there's dread. So fear is something that in a way, you know, is the right decision, but you're really scared. And dread is like this horrible feeling that like the universe or God or your own intuition is telling you like, this is not for me. This is really bad. Do it. And I think that discerning between those two can be hard, but if you really like quiet yourself and you hear that inner voice, you will know what's, what is something that you're supposed to do, but you're just scared versus what you're scared of. And you really aren't supposed to be doing. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And I think so many people listening, like are really struggling doing a day job that they don't feel fulfilled in, but it's so difficult to take that leap of faith in themselves. And I think you're an example of somebody who did. And I think if, if it feels right, if you listen to your gut and it's visceral, it's going to be okay, especially at those ages, but also, but also at the 38, 39s, because things, things work out. I don't know. Like it, it's, there's, there's always, I think a way to somehow revert back to where you were. I don't think things are not reversible. And I think it's really important to listen to the gut and to really feel, am I in tune with myself and with my values? And, and I think you're a real example of that. And, and also with respect, just you as a, as a mini cosmos, but also as in charity water, that's actually conveying that to the universe and really being transparent and genuine and visceral as much. It, it's amazing that you can talk about charity water as if it's a being, as if there's, there's, it's possible to be visceral as a nonprofit, but it makes sense when I speak about it, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an expression of, you know, the values that came out of myself and Scott that then really got transferred to every single person who works there. I mean, we are so intentional about only hiring people who are 100% aligned with every single one of our five values. If they're only aligned with four and not the fifth, we don't hire them. What are the values? Transparency integrity, passion, humility, ah, fifth one. So I don't, you know, as you know, I haven't worked full time at charity water since, uh, gosh, five years ago. So a little rusty, but I, um, but at least those, those are the four and I will remember the fifth. It's fine. It's fine. Your integrity, by the way, by saying that you do remember the fifth, by the way, it works. So (laughs) I'm not going to like make it up. I I don't remember. You're four out of four. I hope the fifth is not, don't show that you don't know the fifth. (laughs) Right, right, right. I think like saying words like that is not enough as a company. Like just saying we value integrity means nothing to anybody. Exactly. And Ron valued integrity and, you know, many, many companies um, have said that. Not with the transparency, you know, the synergy, synergetic, (laughs) saying both of them together. If you have integrity, you can be transparent. So that's, that's part of it, right? So that's the best part about it is, you know, I, I think the way Scott and I live, like in our personal lives, he will, we both will never, like, we will never lie about anything in our entire personal lives ever. Like, and in, in, in even at Charity Water, you know, I mentioned the word integrity doesn't mean much. So we have a, a, a set of about 20 isms, like kind of like little micro stories or behaviors or examples of what those values mean. So one of, and one of the isms is no white lies. And we even go as far as like saying, you know, so in business, it's really easy to say, like if you're an assistant for the CEO and the CEO 
says, Hey, that person, I don't want to talk to them today. Can you just make up a lie and say that? Like, I, I had to go home because I don't feel well. We would never ever do that at charity water. So we would always find either a way to say, sorry, this, you know, so-and-so isn't able to speak with you today. Meaning, meaning like that's not a lie, Yeah. but you know, so even like those little tiny details we care deeply about because we realize there's no way we can live with integrity. If we're wrapped up in a bunch of, you know, lies that we can't keep track of lying is expensive. Lying takes a lot of brain power and time and memory and memory. Exactly. So how do you differentiate between someone who's white lying or the person who's sitting and doesn't know exactly what the problem is? Okay, so he's guessing what the problem is, but you know it's not the problem. You know what I mean? Like, how do you approach, do you want me to give an example of what I'm saying? I think I understand what you're saying. And that's, I mean, if you don't know, then you're not lying. You're just. Yeah. yeah but, but if you're covering up for it, then you are. But you know that yeah, if you're right. going to be transparent and give him the answer, that it may be something that he can't confront right now. Like, I know I'm talking like as it's traumatic, but there's a lot of things like that. You sit beside a person and he's giving an excuse why you didn't deliver something for him. It's the reality, right? Now you have to decide right now, if you're going to be transparent and tell him that, which will actually consume an hour and a half to explain why you're not trying to humiliate him, but you're trying to give him a better outcome. Okay. And you don't have an hour and a half. I think it's important to spend the hour. I mean, and that goes that, that now we're having a very, you know, different conversation about managing people and, um, investing in the people you lead as a leader, if you don't have time to help your employees grow emotionally and m- grow in their maturity as human beings, then you're not going to get very far as a company, right? So I think that hour is very well spent. It's probably the most important thing you should do that day um, is spend that hour. Fair enough. I love that. I love that. And t- tell us about the new startup then. Oh yeah, sure. You know, and, and, and I'll even, I'll even tell uh, the backstory of it because this will go to show that, um, you know, leaving something you're comfortable with often is um, not a straight path to the next thing. So when I left Charity Water, um, gosh, well, first of all, I became a mom. I had two little kids and everything was much harder after that because you don't have, your time is not yours. So I first tried to write a short book because I thought, how do I teach some of these principles that we learned at Charity Water to other nonprofits? And I would sneak away for two, three hours here or there when my my second was a baby and my grandmother would come and she would babysit so I can go to Starbucks and like type on my laptop. And I wrote a pretty good book proposal. It was like 25 pages. I worked on it for, gosh, probably a year. And, um, but, but not full time, just in those kind of little windows that I would find. And I took it to a publisher and a couple of publishers and they said, you know, the publishing world is different now. So if you want us to publish your book, you got to bring the audience. And at the same time, Scott was writing his book and he had the power of charity water behind thirst. So, you know, his book gets published, he writes it, he gets it published and bestseller. Bestseller and Charity Water is really able to push and promote it. And I'm sort of left to realize, wow, okay, if I don't have a platform, if I don't have the the people, the readers, the the buyers, no one's going to publish it. And self-publishing just didn't feel like the right path to me. So I totally abandoned that. And 
that took a year to figure out that like actually writing a book was not the thing I'm supposed to be doing. And of course I say, you know, like I'm very lucky that I had a husband who had an income during that time that I could keep trying these things. A lot of people don't have that and it is harder for them, but I think it's still doable. Um, it is harder. So I'll acknowledge that, but that's my story. And after that, I decided, okay, you know what? I want to teach branding marketing to startups. And for whatever reason, I was trying to get as far away from the nonprofit world, maybe because I was trying to prove something to myself. So I was like, I don't want to teach nonprofits. I want to teach for-profit startups. I thought it was cool. I thought people would think it's cool that I'm doing that and realized really that I was caring way more about what people thought about me than what I really was passionate about doing. And I sort of got caught up in that for a couple of years thinking, well, if I leave Charity Water, I should do something fabulous that everybody is going to think is really awesome. And it just never felt right. So I couldn't really find my niche or like the people. What was dreadful here? Because it sounds like the dreadful, not the fearful, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, and, and then I consulted for three months for a startup. That was, that was the most dreadful experience. So a lot of people after Charity Water were like, you should consult. That's what people like you do after you leave as the co-founder of a nonprofit like Charity Water, you should go consult. So I was like, okay, I guess maybe, maybe I should go consult. So, you know, I just kept thinking like, what are people, what, are, what is going to make people admire me the most? Uh, which is so silly because like after Charity Water, I should know better at this point, but you know, we still go through those moments. And um, so when I consulted for three months, probably two and a half years ago, I was flying to Austin twice a week. It was such a mess. The startup was, was very confused. Nobody knew what I was supposed to be doing. I didn't have any CEO just was like, come in and do whatever you want. Work your magic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He literally said, work your magic. We want your magic here. And I was, and I was, I, that, that should have been, if anyone says that to you, that's such a red flag, such a red flag. Never, ever take a job where someone says, work your magic. Right, right. And it was horrible. I failed miserably. I didn't know what my magic was or how to work it. And I knew they had partners. People were expecting you to pull something out of a hat. Well, everybody also was threatened by me because I was the consultant coming in, flying in from New York that the boss, the CEO brought in without a job description. And she's supposed to work her magic. So is that, what does, does that mean? She's going to fire me? Is she going to restructure the organization? What is she going to do? Right. Everybody was scared. Then it was terrible and nobody, you know, had my trust. I didn't have any buy-in and anyway. And that really made me realize the difference between dread. Like I dreaded going there. I mean, it was only thankfully for a form. It was four months in the end, dreadful, dreadful experience. Great people. Just, just bad fit. Bad fit. Exactly. And misalignment of, of expectations because they're sort of expecting like there's one CEO was saying, listen, I bought us like the best of the best to do something. You guys just listen. And it doesn't, and reality doesn't work that way. Huge. Exactly. Huge misalignment. You know, he wanted me to storytell. Everybody else was like, no, we got to make money. This is a startup. We don't have time. Anyway. So all that said, after that, I did a major like life check-in again was like, Victoria, what are you doing? Like, who do you really want to help? And it took me right back to when I was 23 in marketing thinking, I don't really want to sell stuff to people who don't need more stuff. And not to say that there's anything wrong with working in a marketing career. It was just not for me. That's not what I wanted my life to be about. And when I said, you know what, let me go back to kind of what I've always been passionate about, which is using marketing to sort of solve global problems and help make the world a better place. 
And that immediately, you know, cleared my mind to say, well, I should be coaching nonprofits in marketing and how to tell their stories so that I can, you know, at the end of my life, say maybe I coached a thousand or 3000 or 10,000 nonprofits to be more visible, to be more, more appealing to donors, to raise more money, to solve more problems that need to be solved in the world to help more people. When I said that, when I believed that for myself, shortly after I launched my course, I made a hundred thousand dollars in a year. I like everything just fell into place because I stopped caring so much what other people wanted me to be doing and just did what I knew I should be doing and felt right for me. And you also sort of went into quote unquote flow. So instead of questioning yourself and thinking, how do I test myself and who am I? And sort of putting some sort of light on yourself and getting your sort of shaken with your self-esteem and trying to see what, who am I without charity water? And now I have to throw myself into an arena that I'm not necessarily comfortable in, but I think I have to prove something. And sort of, I think when you stopped asking, what, how can I prove something and started asking, how, how can, can I, I be of value? Then you tapped back into you. And, and, and to what you were always were and charity water was just one outlet. And now you're just sort of arranging and, and channeling the same energy into other doing, but it's the same essence. And I think maybe along the way, you sort of lost your essence for various reasons. And it's okay. It's the journey, right? Of course. By the way, I should pay you for this like awesome therapy session. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if there's anyone listening who is a parent, like that plays, that plays into, that shakes your confidence. If your identity is, is, is rooted in being a, 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 an entrepreneur or someone who's a working person all your life, then all of a sudden you're staying home, you're in your pajamas every day. And you're like, not only did I lose my identity at work as an, as a boss, as a leader, and now you're, you're, you're sitting home with a baby all day long. Like both of those things happened for me at the same time, which really did. It really shook my confidence. And it's so important to, to just be aware and, and, and sort of just understand where am I and where on the scale of what I want to do and who I want to be am I right now? And sometimes it's just a matter of owning it and saying, you know what, I sort of lost my track, but now that I'm aware, I can find my way back to it. Absolutely. What do you think your superpower is? Oh gosh, that's a very good question. I think, so I'm an Enneagram 4. I don't know if you know much about the Enneagram. No, no, you don't. Okay. You should absolutely read about the Enneagram. It's a personality typology, ancient, the ancient Romans used it, the Greeks, uh, and there's nine types of personalities. You can be on a spectrum of integrated versus disintegrated, meaning emotionally healthy or unhealthy that manifests in different ways. I'm a four where, we're the most creative, also the most, um, we feel the most amount of emotions in a day. Uh, and And so when I learned about my type, when I kind of typed myself and figured it, it's like, you know, there's a lot of these type out that type tests, um, Myers-Briggs, et cetera, but they tell you a lot more about yourself. And so I think knowing all that I know, my superpower really, truly is being myself, like authenticity. Like I just cannot be someone that I am not for very long. You know, so trying to write a book, trying to be a consultant, all those things fizzled out very quickly because I just cannot 
pretend to be somebody that I do not feel like I am. So I think I would have to say it's 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 authenticity, even though I kind of hate that word because it's so overused. So I wrote this down. This is like a, this is my magic trick, right? I wrote this down. I call it accountability, right? Because you're you're like that's exactly what I thought myself like from many years. It's like the commitment to yourself. So like it's accountability for what you say, okay, or what you do. So you want to actually be. Even saying that yourself, that you wake up every morning and I can't commit to myself means accountability, right? Because you say that off the time, which takes in, in account what you're saying. So like, I agree, like, I'm happy. That's, a, that's exactly the thing. You're accountable to exactly yourself. And, and I think it's also your gift because, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain. I heard once a podcast with Peter Thiel of PayPal, and he apparently used to be a lawyer and he worked at this big prestigious firm. And he couldn't bear it and he left. And he described them the day when he was walking out, you know, with the boxes and the envious looks that at least that was his interpretation that has to be said. But he felt there's envious looks uh, of him walking and just stepping out of this dream job, quote unquote. And he explained it by saying he was lucky enough that he just couldn't bear it. And mm-hmm. and I get it. And I think you, it's it's a bit of what you mean that at the end of the day, you need to be lucky enough to not be able to bear what's not in tune with your inner self. And, and it's also a curse because it's because it, we can't bear something that's very painful. But I think it's like a bit like teething pains for kids talking about like babies and kids. Like once you go through it, like on the other side of fear and uncertainty and being un- unable to bear stuff, there's the, the, the most amazing things happen. There's great joy because you then have everything that, is good that happens to you is a result of you having having overcome that fear, taken that leap, tried that new thing. And, you know, you, you're so filled with this deep sense of pride that, you know, it was hard, but I did that and nothing, no one will ever take that away from you. Nobody, me. nobody can take it away from you. As opposed to having somebody hand you something that just happens to work out you know, like that happened to me with charity water in a way, like charity water in many ways happened to me. And Scott swept me up in his like thing he was starting and I came along and it all worked out beautifully. But at the end, which is, this is why I think I still didn't have confidence after 10 years of working with him and building charity water. You would think we did, we grew this huge thing. It was so successful. You would think I would have all the confidence, but you don't know if it's you. Yes. It happened to me. I didn't make it happen. Now that I I'm doing my own thing, coaching nonprofits, launched a successful course, have had 300 nonprofits go through it. I did all of that by myself. And I don't want it to sound like, oh, I did it. It's all me, blah, blah, blah. But it, you need those, those achievements in your life that, that, that only you can take credit for. But are you able now in retrospect to sort of, you know, even doing stuff now with startups, are you sort of realizing where you connected really important dots and are really a significant part of the success to the extent that it probably wouldn't be the same without you? Like, are you able to acknowledge that now or are you still not sure? I still some days have moments where I'm like, if I didn't show up in Scott's life, he would have found another person just as good as me. I, I, I don't know why I still think that, but I still have those moments. Just because the values of, of, of it is humility. 
<laughs> so I'm going to let you go with that because you have no good answer to your, to your husband. So I'm going to let you go with that one. But no, but no, I'm going to let her go in that one. Trust me, because it's a husband, right? It's not a boss. So fine. But, but it can be better than a, that. But it started as a boss. But I want I want to summarize something really important before we leave. Okay. So there's something you said it was therapy, but I think there's a really good epiphany, and that's why we're excited about about this. And I, I'm going to try and summarize it in a sentence. Okay. As an entrepreneur. You have a lot of decision-making and a lot of risk-taking. And you call it fearful and dreadful, the difference, but I'm tr- sort of going to try to try to give someone the bigger difference because I think what you're saying with fearful, don't get confused with something that is exciting but has a risk between something that is is the best outcome is, a, is an outcome that you won't be happy with, meaning you're dreading that anything less than the best outcome there is shitty. Like when you make a decision, be excited. There is a risk and don't be scared because there is no reward. And that's really important because, you know, in the 142 average decision that an entrepreneur has to have in a day, that's a very useful tool to see if you're loyal to yourself. Okay. And if there's a chance the outcome could be worthwhile on a macro level, you, there's no way to be, uh, to have humility on that because that's a key differentiator and I love it. Like that's a really good differentiator and, uh, for you. And, and that's something that the listeners themselves, which are mostly entrepreneurs, I think it's a really good tool to use. So I thank you for that. Absolutely. And also, can we, can we say shit on this podcast? Oh yeah, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I think about this. I think what you're saying is very similar to, uh, the writer Elizabeth Gilbert, who, um, wrote Big Magic. She talks about the shit sandwich, right? The, the stuff in the middle that no one wants to really do, but you are really willing to do because of the ultimate goal that this can achieve and fear or, or nervousness um, is part of all of that, you know, that, that ship between the sandwich. And, you know, that's a really good test too. Like if you are happy to, to do the worst parts of the job, because you just enjoy the the end result so much and it feels right for you, then then you're on the right track. And if the worst part of the job is so dreadful for you that you don't even want to show up for work, then you're you're doing something wrong. Right. Amen. And I want to tell you, Vic, like I for what it's worth, I think your co-founder and husband is hands down a rock star. And I think that can be a little, you know, confusing to be you know, in the light of that, but I am sure for what it's worth that you are a part of the success in a way that without you, this would not be the reality and everything wouldn't materialize what it did. And, and I think that, and I, and I hope for you that you will sometime own it. And, and I just want to lastly ask you, like, what type of companies and startups should reach, could reach out to you? Uh, because that's a good fit. And how can they? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, you can find me at vicharison.com. And I spend a lot of time on Instagram at vicharison. And I work with uh, purpose-driven entrepreneurs and mostly these days, nonprofits and founders of nonprofits. Uh, that sounds like a rational fit. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I hope that you keep materializing your integrity and values uh, to make the world a better place. I'm pretty confident that you will. And I hope as many nonprofits identify this and reach out to you. And I wish you the best of luck. 
Thank you. Thank you both for such a fun time chatting. I loved it. Real life. Superpowers. Superpowers.